Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're talking to Alokik, who is the managing partner at Fidelity International Strategic Ventures. And we're going to talk about how they approach uh, working with startups, investing in them, how they approach sourcing, what are the key themes that they like at Fidelity, and uh, how they look at the international landscape, because of course they are very much an international firm as well, and Alokik is based in London. So how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. All right. Great. So can you tell us a bit about yourself? What's your backstory? How did you get to do what you do today? This is one of the coziest and hottest jobs out there. So how? what's your journey? No, that's a good question. Thank you. So I started, as many people do in this industry, coming out of university into investment banking. And I spent a ton of time looking at financial services institutions and working with senior bankers and advising them on capital raising, M&A processes, etc. After a couple of years of doing that, I, I learned a lot. You learn a tremendous amount, but I didn't feel I had a, a good detailed understanding of why people are doing or why companies are doing what they're doing. You are working in more of a mechanical form. And so after a couple of years, I said, can I you know, move to another part of the firm? I was at Merrill Lynch at the time in New York, where they're doing strategic investments. And at the time, it was 2002, there, the advent of tech and internet into financial services, the digitization of financial services was just starting in equity markets and debt markets. We were able to invest and help create a bunch of different platforms. Mm-hmm. So I started in that area. And that was the first part of what seems like a long journey of going through from Merrill Lynch in New York and London, Goldman Sachs in London and Hong Kong, and then Fidelity most recently in London, looking at a global perspective um, to continue to look at this space. Now, what was financial services, the digitization of financial services, technology in in the financial industry morphed into a fancy word called fintech, which has now become, you know, the most sort of common buzzword across the industry. So I'll stop there. All right. So can you briefly describe the Fidelity's approach to working with startups if you look at it as a continuum, right? From let's maybe hiring them as a vendor and perhaps with the streamlined onboarding process to some sort of a partnership investing or acquiring. Yeah, absolutely. So I think Fidelity has been a company that is has a long history, family owned, family run for several generations, and both in the US and internationally. The work that we do on my team is mostly associated with Fidelity's international business outside of the US. And so the way in which we work is Fidelity works with a lot of different vendors from that classic procurement through vendor management and through third-party technology usage. Fidelity hasn't been very acquisitive in its history in terms of acquiring lots of businesses. I'd say there's been a few different acquisitions that have been attractive and and incremental. And so the business that we do and, and the focus that we have is very much 
on joining the dots between fidelity and some of its problem statements and use cases and the external ecosystem of fintech startups and anything that touches the wealth and asset management world. So basically enabling usage of third-party technologies, but also investing in them to create that true strategic linkage on partnership, on collaborations, on product construction, etc. So if we zoom in on your team, you already mentioned you're the managing partner at Fidelity International Strategic Ventures. So it, it obviously suggests that you're looking at uh, investing in startups from a strategic perspective. Well, what's your team's mandate? So our team's mandate is, is, is twofold. One is to find companies that can enhance capabilities, accelerate developments, improve operations of anything across the Fidelity International ecosystem. And that's across all the different geographies and countries that they operate in. As well as once we make these investments, it's it's on two different dimensions, the strategic impact of Fidelity, as well as the financial returns to the portfolio. So we're always looking at it through both those dimensions. I'd say if you take the, the classic investors that are VC type investors, they're looking at a financial return perspective. Sometimes when you take corporate strategy teams or some of the uh, principal investing or strategic teams, they're usually looking at a strategic angle first, financial return second. For us, we sit somewhere in the middle of looking at both of them in tandem to make sure that they both resonate for us, not one over the other. Right. And in terms of international angle and the coverage there, you're based in London. So do you have the teams in, in other parts of the world as well? Or how does that work? Absolutely. So firstly, just to give you some facts and data, right? So we've been doing this for just under three years. Uh, we've invested in 15 companies globally, and that's com- companies all across the world from Canada, US, UK, continental Europe, Israel, India, Singapore, and China. With that perspective, it's important that we're able to connect in and partner with different parts of the Fidelity ecosystem on identifying, working with, evaluating some of these companies, as well as the external ecosystem, whether it's our our partner and sister funds at Eight Roads, or even beyond into other funds that we would be happy to co-invest with and, and continue to do. So we look at the origination coming through different channels. We also look at the check sizes as quite flexible. Sometimes we want to come in early and invest at a Series A stage. Sometimes we're happy to come in at Series B or C. Um, But we're also long-term and somewhat patient capital towards doing this because we're utilizing our own balance sheet to make investments and not in a time-boxed funds. And what kind of startups that you've invested in are we talking about? And Are they just fintechs or you can call them tech companies? Can you mention some success stories of the ones that you invested yeah, in? Sure. Maybe it's a bit early, of course, three years. So go ahead and brag anyway. No, that's very kind. I'll just mention a few. But the I think for us, the key part is where are the avenues that something can be strategic today or in the near future? And we look at both. It doesn't mean that everything has to have a signed commercial partnership contract for us to invest in them. I'll give you a couple of names that are interesting. In the UK, we invested in a direct-to-consumer investing savings platform called Moneybox Allows average retail investors to start with a very low base and invest towards their future. They can then save towards a home. They can consolidate their pension. They can ask for mortgage advice and create a very long-term, very customer-centric, customer-oriented journey towards that. Platforms have been hugely successful. We invested in them in their Series B and C, and we'll look to support them going forward as well. Another one that's a, a very different proposition is a platform we backed last year uh, called DriveWealth, and DriveWealth has had huge successes. It's basically brokerage as a service for the US market for now. And so any fintech or incumbent that wishes to offer equity trading into their platforms or their apps can just plug in their API into DriveWealth, and they take care of everything from their client onboarding and KYC through execution, fractional trading, 
books and records in custody. And they, another one, just to give some perspective, we invest in another platform in India, which is again a D2C investing platform into mutual funds and other products. Kubera has recently had a exclusive partnership with Amazon in India to be able to offer their products through the millions of Amazon customers, which is due to go live in the next quarter. So just a couple of examples that are quite wide ranging and, uh, and detailed. So just to add to that, I mentioned some of these that are more B2C or B2C, but we also invest into things in the B2B space. So in that space, we've invested in businesses in the rec tech sector, like Steelive. We've invested in data integration platforms like Finborn uh, and beyond. So several different players in that space, but also hopefully that all gives right. you some perspective. Yeah, all right. Brilliant. One of my pet uh, pet questions is, how do you find the deals? How does your sourcing work? And of course. A lot of investors say, come on, we've been in this business for decades. We have a network. We've got so much inbound and we know the partners network. So we've got enough to look at. But other people also say we develop a view of certain themes and we proactively search the ideas because what we don't want is, well, if you're a corporate VC, they sometimes say we don't want anything from the West Coast. It's too early. But on the other hand, we don't want something that is on the front page of the FTs as well. So it's all about timing. But then if you passively for inbound, how does that work? So what is your philosophy when you come to sourcing, when it comes I, to sourcing? I, I'd say it's a combination of both, right? So we're very actively out meeting with people in the market, both the startups, community, events and conferences, as well as the VC community in this space. Now, to be honest, we're very clear about the spaces we play in. As a fintech investor, fintech is quite broad. It's also one of the most exciting spaces right now and gets a lot of attention. But we're very clear about the areas within fintech that we don't play in, right? At Fidelity, at its core, as a wealth and asset manager. And as a result of that, we tend to look at things that enhance or amplify that wealth and asset management business or anything that touches it. But we also say, what are the areas we're not playing in? So we're not looking at lending. We're not looking at payments. And we're not looking at insurance because they don't fit for with us strategically at this stage. Separately, to the second point that you made, we do look at things thematically. We develop a view on a particular theme We'll come up with a thesis on that theme and we'll go and meet a whole bunch of companies in that space that helps us to stay focused. So at any given point, we're probably looking at six or seven themes and going pretty deep on those themes. And and the same thing is globally. We're not necessarily looking at a particular theme in a particular geography. We look at these things and say, what's happening in these themes in different parts of the world? So can you share some of those themes? Let's say they are related to wealth tech or wealth management that you're looking at and maybe... They got amplified uh, over the last uh, you know, 18 months uh, as well. People talked about blockchain a lot. Now they talk about it a lot as well again. <laughs> then every startup said we are AI-powered, etc. Yep. And uh, that sometimes translated to AI-powered insights, those sort of things. So what do you focus on? So within the themes, I'll give you a, a couple of examples of some of the themes we're looking at now, right? So we're looking at the areas around democratizing access to investment products. So that's notions of embedded finance capabilities to allow people to access a range of products. So, so whether it's you starting in a payments or lending platform, but you want to trade stocks or you want to have a savings account, how do you bring those bits together? So that notion is interesting and ties well to our retail franchise. We're looking at parts of the financial services ecosystem that also comes to individuals through their work through their employers as benefits and others. What else do people want in that ecosystem? What can be done? What's the most efficient way to deliver it? So we think that's really interesting. 
Another one we're looking at is the entire notion of alternative assets and private assets. We invest in a platform called Moonfair towards that angle. We have another investment in a platform called Primary Bid. Basically, the democratization of, of private assets so that it's no longer the purview of high net worth or ultra high net worth, but can be accessed by a broad swath of people directly or indirectly. And then probably the last one I'd mention is this whole space around sustainability, everything in the ESG space. Platforms that are able to provide analytics, reporting, product construction tools and capabilities all make sense for us. So sustainability, of course, we, we covered on this podcast. Also, this democratization that generally means basically allowing some sort of a fractional ownership or entry to into the alternative assets. So you don't need to put $100,000 into a hedge fund, which is the minimum, but you can buy a smaller slice, correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Obviously... When you look at fintech VC funding this year, it, it has reached record heights. Obviously, that's great. Great if you're a founder. But on the other hand, aren't we see starts of a growing bubble? You mentioned that you started uh, looking at this space uh, in early 2000s. Of course, this was right after dot-com bubble. Any sort of words of caution? Do you see any similarities that we should be worried about? If you are an investor and maybe you get on this uh, train and then let's see if that works out well for you, right? <laughs> no, I think that's right. And look, I think there's a lot of data points that can give you you know, an understanding of some of this, right? So firstly, VC funding and fintech is at an all-time high. One in every $5 goes to fintech globally. The deals are at an all-time high. The amount of funding going into not only the US, but also Europe is at all-time highs. Plus also the exit environment has been hugely positive over the last, say, year or so. I think the interesting part beyond that is then what's happening in the sub-verticals within fintech. Some of the areas around that are probably not growing as fast. Right? Are there things, when you think about payments, insurance, lending, trading and investment, and neobanking, they're all going at sort of differential rates. And we look at that space as trading and investment has been probably the most fast growing in the space. So, And I don't think that's going to, to, to slow down. It's just which are there going to be winners and which are going to get easier to back. I think valuations are definitely at all-time highs. I think both the two interesting areas that we see now is the valuation growth and how fast these deals get done. Previously, when you raised money into a company, say a Series B company, that money would last 18, 24 months before they came back out into the market. Those fundraising cycles have gotten shortened significantly, either because of significant investor interest or need for people to be able to need for some of these companies to be able to deploy additional capital to gain faster scale to show dominance in that particular space. There's absolutely no doubt that we're seeing valuations significantly higher than they've seen even just last year, but also just over the last three quarters, those have all trickled up. Whether you're doing a series A deal, a B deal or C deal, it doesn't matter. They've all trickled up. And so this creates opportunity, but also addresses some of the other parts of the market where the the supply of capital is at an all-time high. There's no shortage of investors in this space and they don't seem to be going away. So let's see how this is going to pan out. Let me follow up on one more thing that you mentioned that you are looking at maybe series A and B. I'd like to know how do you think about selecting uh, the, the startup or, or scale up or the team? How, what are the selection criteria they lo- that you're looking at? Of course, if it, when it's early stage, a lot of people say it's more about the team than the idea, mm-hmm. especially if it's a serial entrepreneur. We can trust them, they can figure it out, and we you know, get the reference on them. Some corporate VCs also add to it and say it's also about the culture. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are maybe not fit and built to work with enterprises. So how do you think about it when you see a proposal? When I, when I think about your question, I think about it as a barbell, right? So I think there's some companies that we'll invest in early. So I would say Series A type stage where they may not be yet 
perfectly ready to work with an organization like Fidelity. They'd probably have a minimum viable product. They've probably got some minimal revenues. They've had a go-to-market and they've got some version of product market fit, but probably needs to be honed further. I think along those lines, we would probably uh, be happy to co-invest or invest alongside other VCs that are specialists at that stage or in that space, which is really interesting for us. And I think we've been able to prove and show that in a few different instances as well. But those kinds of organizations, even with the best diligence in the world, are going to go through some versions of twists and turns and pivots. And so you have to make sure that management team is sound, as you said, and that they are coachable and that you want to work with them. I think all of those three things are important. On the other side of the scale, we look at companies that are probably a little bit later, B or C, to start, where they've gone a bit further, they've got a much deeper market fit, they have already some enterprise clients, they already have some ways in which they know how to work with these later stage and larger businesses. And so that creates less risk. But there, what you're trying to show is that they've got what it takes to win in that space, they can be the category killer, they can they have the team that knows how to scale, or they can surround themselves with the right people, and they have the vision, the ambition, and the know-how to get there. So I would think of it for us, it's probably both sides of that barbell because we don't specifically focus on a particular area. So I guess obviously it depends always on the case and the circumstances. But once you write the check and you're an investor, what is your maybe main philosophy in terms of are you going to be active or, or not? Are you opening doors for them? Are you focusing on opening doors to fidelity rather than the entire ecosystem? How does that work? So we are very much active investors. Pretty much every investment we make, we sit on the board, either as a board member or a board observer. And that's across me and my... And I think that the part is we want to be active, we want to be engaged, we want to help in every way and shape that we can. And we'll do this through a few different dimensions. We'll do this through the investing team specifically and the amount of time and energy we can help with the company, uh, helping them with their own strategy or financial performance and, and thinking about how they're able to project that and think about that appropriately, think about product development and go to market. We definitely help them with the fidelity side of it. And this is where I think we differentiate ourselves versus others, where oftentimes there's a bit of a dislocation, especially in corporate VCs, where you throw the ball over the wall and hope that it lands. In our case, we're handholding you through that entire process and making sure that a company that is coming in that has some strategic potential can get an appropriate sort of uh, review by fidelity in particular part of the business or technology areas or operations to ensure that a partnership could or couldn't benefit. And then thirdly, we have an entire value add platform team that has a phenomenal impact to help people on hiring incentives, senior executives and coaching. We have a, a sort of any legal support we can provide, a perspective we can provide towards that end. We bring external venture partners on our platform who are able to provide this perspective on go-to-market, marketing strategies, technology, etc. So lots of different ways that we bring more than the money. And it's something that I'm absolutely laser focused on because in a world where money is plentiful, you've got to be able to differentiate. Great. And if you take a step back, how does monitoring of those investments work for you as a strategic investor? You said, obviously, that you're using your own balance sheet for this. So I would assume even if that you value this quarterly, etc. But how do you feel about milestones versus KPIs? Some people say, look, we cannot overload the startups with KPIs. Are you crazy? This is not a mature business. Of course not, but it's a learning vehicle. So they're supposed to move forward. So how do you do it? Is there any way to quantify it or at least qualitatively to check whether they are on track or not? Yes, I think it's probably two things. Right? So firstly, from a monitoring perspective, just the board meeting updates is not enough. We spend a lot more time with the right. founders, with the management and with the teams on. We'll do strategy sessions with them. We'll do uh, regular updates with them. We'll do one-on-one catch-ups with the CEOs as needed. 
just to ensure that we have enough of a pulse and we can continue to be a trusted source of information, conversation, impact, ideas, strategies, everything that they may wish to discuss and bounce off. From a monitoring KPIs versus milestones and others, look, I think the key thing you're looking for is direction. You're trying to make sure that this is going in the same direction. I think there's very few companies that will always hit their numbers. There's one in our portfolio that sort of always managed to hit their numbers somehow. And we always thought that was magic, but you're looking for direction. You're looking for greater evidences of product market fit, of customer feedback, of uses of implementations, of driving your customer acquisition costs lower and your revenue potential higher. You're looking for all these evidences. And I think that's the main thing that you're aiming to see whether the directional goals are right because the exact numbers are never going to work. But you're trying to make sure that you're growing towards something, but also achieving and creating the right platform to be able to service that. So the technology to service it, the scale to be able to service it. Because otherwise you can say, I can go out and get 500 clients in a month in theory, but I may not have the tech and skill to be able to actually service that client and the whole business whole business falls away. And we already talked about your role as an investor, that you're pretty much an active investor, that you'd like to do or provide more than just money uh, mm-hmm. in the world that there is so much capital, of course, it makes sense. Now, obviously, let's be honest, the corporate VC sometimes get a bad reputation, right? The startups, they expect maybe something more out of corporate VCs. They do expect the support and opening of the doors and working with the business and building out the commercial relationship and scaling up that way. And sometimes it doesn't happen. You've seen this for a while in different organizations. So what would your recipe for success for a corporate VC? So I think the key part for me here is, and you're right, we've seen very many different models of what works and what doesn't work. I think that there's a few things you're trying to solve. Firstly, you've got to make sure that the corporate VC arm or the agents of that VC have the right sponsorship and backing within the organization. The second is what are their motivations for success? Are they trying to bring technology in to quote unquote learn for the big organization or are they actually motivated to make it successful, both with a strategic impact of the firm and a financial return? you'd be surprised how many times that's not always in sync. I think the third is to try and prevent conflict because oftentimes the people that are evaluating these technologies internally are the ones that are likely to be either replaced or not going to be able to, to, to put out their internal developments, but rather use a third party. So there's conflict there. And there's conflict that can exist at all different stages. You're trying to quickly root out and weed out any versions of conflict that can exist in the structure or its decision. And then the last point, I think, is prioritization and implementation, right? So all organizations, large or small, are chock full of pipelines and products and everything, projects that they have underway. So how are you going to fit in this new shiny thing that you've thought of into the product cycles? And I think that's the key part, making sure that you've got the right understanding of how this fits in the right way and that you can be there through the process. I think that's the biggest issue. Most times corporate VCs get a bad rap because many companies don't want the VC, they just want the the commercial partnership. If that's the case, then just do a commercial partnership. Don't take the VC money. And so I think it's important that people that are doing this with a corporate VC mindset are doing it with the right intent. So it sounds like the, the keys to success are clear governance, incentives, clarity of execution plan, and governance also on a micro level when you sense conflicts, how do you deal with that? And then, of course, open, honest communication from both sides. So exactly as you said, if they don't want the the investor there, then uh, that's maybe not the right uh, setup for a startup either. Agreed. All right. So that's great. Well, thank you so much, Alokik, for explaining us how uh, Fidelity approaches strategic ventures. And my last question would be, what would be the best way for interested parties to reach out? And who would you like to hear from most? 
Well, for me, it's you know, I'd be like to hear from everyone. So anybody who thinks they have uh, the right stage of of startup product market fit to be strategic to a company like Fidelity, uh, especially for our international businesses. And then secondly, to the broader VC community at all stages, Seed, Series A, and beyond, always happy to partner, always happy to work together, co-invest alongside sensible strategic investors and financial investors as well. Brilliant. So thank you very much and good luck to Fidelity. Thanks very much. Appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.